Redeem, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're preaching through the book of Acts, and so it is no coincidence that we're here in our passage this morning. Uh, so we're in Acts chapter 6. To give you a backdrop of what's happened in Acts thus far, at least the last chapter, last chapter ended with uh, persecution with uh, the disciples, um, uh, perhaps beaten almost unto death. And then a man named Gamaliel uh, encouraged the religious leaders that, that they may find themselves opposing the Lord. And it ended with the word of God grew. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so we're picking up in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And when these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we uh, love you, and we need you. We need your spirit to give us uh, understanding. Father, without your spirit giving me clarity of thought and unction of the Holy Ghost, and the rightly dividing of your word, then we labor in vain. And it's possible to be hearers of your word, and we hear in vain, not desiring to be doers. And so, Father, I pray for protection both for the preacher and for the listener. May we be like those in the Bible who hear your word, and we cherish it, and we meditate upon it, and we hide it in our hearts that we would glorify you and honor you, that we would repent where repentance is needed, that we will be encouraged where encouragement is needed. Above all things, Father, I pray that you will conform us, not after the first Adam and his ways, but after the second Adam and his holiness. Do this, I pray, for the glory of your name. Amen. So there's a phrase that I want us to consider for a moment, and it's the honeymoon is now over. The honeymoon is now over. In its original context, that, that phrase comes from uh, marriage. And, and you can envision a couple who's wanted to get married and their wedding day is here. And finally, they're able to get married and to go on a honeymoon and to uh, begin this new life together. And somewhere down the line, three months, six months, maybe two weeks, I, I don't know about you when you got married and you had your first big blow up. And maybe you reached out to someone and they say, yeah, the honeymoon is now over, isn't it? Right. And what that phrase means is now you realize you're married to a fellow sinner and you're going to hurt each other and harm each other. 
reality sets in. And we've applied that phrase to numerous other spheres of life. I've heard it used in the context of sports, where this team gets this blockbuster trade and they get this new super athlete and, 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 and there's this, this longing for instant chemistry. And, and of course, when, when they, the new athlete comes into the organization, they're doing really well at the beginning. And then you start to hear chatter about locker room conflict and all this other stuff. And they might say, yeah, the honeymoon is now over. You got to go play together and live together. I've heard it applied when we move to a new city that we've dreamed of living in or we get a new job that we've longed to have. And it's really good at the beginning. And then reality starts to set in. And it also happens in the church. I'd imagine that, it, that, that at some church you've been a part of, maybe even here, that early your joy, your zeal, your longing, your commitment, that it was there. And then you sat in on a committee meeting or saw something somebody else tweeted or posted, and people just kind of get really prickly and kind of, it's just kind of hard. And, 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 and I want to say to you, like, the honeymoon is probably over. Now you got to live with real sinners who are in process, who are on their way home to be with Jesus, but we're not there yet. I use that analogy because that's what's happening in our passage. If you look at what's said about the church before Acts chapter 6, you hear phrases like, they were in each other's homes together daily. Whoa. They broke bread daily. Whoa. They prayed together and with each other daily. They went to the temple daily. That as needs came up, that people readily disposed of their wealth to help those in need. They did this regularly. And so the picture of the church in Acts up until Acts chapter 6 is they're in the honeymoon phase. And when you get to Acts chapter 6, Holy Spirit says, yeah, that honeymoon phase is over. You see what's happening in our passage? Here's what one scholar says. Acts challenges us with the beautiful picture of the church. All the believers were of one heart and mind, and among them there were no needy persons. But in chapter 6, we start to see problems in both of these areas. Every group of Christians that tries to practice true community will sooner or later encounter problems in the very areas of their strength and community life. But this section provides answers, too, for the early church faced the problem squarely as soon as it surfaced. There's a problem that surfaces in this passage, and it's partiality. It's treating one group of people different from the other, and the motivation behind that is culture. And so I think what we're getting here is a window into what do we do in a church where we want to be and are and aspire to be multi-everything. We will inevitably run into situations where our old man and our old woman wants us to look at each other through that old raggedy grid where we assign dignity 
based on if you are this or this, and we will give you our hearts if you are this or this, and if you're not this or this, then we will withhold or punish. That's what's happening in the passage. And so I think that this is a path for us. It's, 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 it's a way for us to consider when this happens, what are we to do? How do we deal with it? I want to show you two and a half points. And I'm going to say half because that last one, I'm just going to read one, one verse of Scripture and say it has been fulfilled in your hearing and we will take a seat, all right? Now, here are the, here are the three points. There's a hurtful complaint of injustice that is taken seriously. There is a hopeful example of repentance that is modeled. And there is a helpful encouragement that validates God's good pleasure. Let's start with the first point. There's a hurtful complaint of injustice to be taken seriously. And I'm getting this from verse 1. Notice how it begins. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so what, what, what Luke is telling us is that they're growing. The word of God is going out and people are bowing the knee, that, that people are coming to faith in Christ. And then, notice that word, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What's the daily distribution? Two Jewish uh, scholars uh, uh, say that what happened was the, the size of the church grew at a rapid rate. And it used to be that as needs came up, they would sell what they had to meet the needs. But now the church has grown exponentially and they're not doing this fly by the night. Okay, if you have a need, we'll sell. They've actually put a system in place where there is a daily distribution. Daily. If you need food, you get food. Daily. If you need clothing, you get clothing. Daily. If you need money, you get money. Right? So that, that, that's a pat on the back. They are realizing that they are a multi-economic um, group. And the poor and the vulnerable are being cared for. And it's a daily thing. But there's a complaint. And we're used to complaints and acts. All the complaints come from the religious leaders. But this complaint is a different complaint. It, it, it hits differently because the complaint is not from the outside. The complaint is from the inside. The complaint was lodged by the Hellenists. Now, kids, I know you see the word hell there, and this has nothing to do with that place. This is a fancy way of saying these were Greek-speaking Jews. So they were Jews ethnically, racially, but culturally, they left Jerusalem and Israel to live in other cities saturated with Greek culture and Greek thought. It's a lot like the book of Ruth, which we did last year, where Ruth left, where Naomi left and went into Moab. She lived outside of Bethlehem, the land of bread, and she went away. And that was common. It was common if you couldn't find work or you fought, fell on hard times, then it was okay to leave. And what they did was they left. We also know from the Bible that, that there was what we call pilgrimage feasts, where wherever you live, if you were Jewish ethnically, you had to come down for Passover. You had to come down for all these other feasts. And so it is likely 
that if you were scattered in Greek world and you grew old, you would eventually get a one-way ticket back home. And you probably traveled during a feast when other Jewish pilgrims were coming home. And it was a one-way ticket, just like Naomi. You were returning to spend your final days there and to have a burial and to die. One scholar says that they estimate anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of all Jews in Jerusalem at this time were Greek speakers. And that usually brought suspicion. Can you imagine leaving your land, going away to live in a Greek city for 30 years and all of a sudden showing back up? Hey, I'm back. You know how they're going to look at you? What they've been teaching you over there. You still believe in the Bible? What you eating? That it would definitely create this air of suspicion. And so the complaint, notice the complaint is filed by the Hellenistic widows. And notice why the complaint is filed. It says that they were being neglected in the daily distribution. Two things about that. First, were being neglected. The way that it's written, it didn't happen once. It was happening repetitively. The were being. Secondly, the Greek word there for neglected is to look around. Which means we see you. But I'm actually not looking at you. I'm looking at the person behind you who is like me. And so they filed a complaint. And I'm calling this injustice because when you read the Old Testament, Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 14, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 7, Ezekiel 22, Malachi 3, And what you're going to see is God's heart for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. It's the quartet of the vulnerable. They show up often in Scripture, and one of God's commandments is to do justice towards that quartet of the vulnerable. And justice looks like preferential and equal treatment. Now, let me step back. All right, you've been to Target, you've been to Walmart, you've been to Kroger. Have y'all been like me where I drive in and I see a parking space and I go down the aisle and I want to turn and get down there to get it only to discover that it has a blue sign on it that says handicap? And I'm like, man, I can get that one. Nope, that one's handicapped too. Well, let me get that one. Nope, that's handicapped too. You got to park down there and you got to walk. Now, why? What does Kroger know? And Walmart and Target, what do they know? It's common grace coming out. They know that the most vulnerable in our society need preferential treatment. How dare me, a 42-year-old, relatively, relatively healthy, how dare I want to park up there and make my grandmother walk in the rain to get her groceries? 
It's common grace. What about a woman who's pregnant in the middle of August in Mississippi with two kids on the back seat? Do you really want her to be getting kids out of the minivan and parking all the way at the end? Does something in you say, no, it is righteous for me to walk and for her to have close proximity to the door? Why? It's justice. It's the heartache that they're enduring. They need help. And in God's economy, the way that he treated Israel is if you were poor, a sojourner, fatherless, or a widow, guess what? You got to park at the front. When the daily distribution was happening, guess who came to the front of the line? Those people. So it has to be preferential. This is God's heart, but it also needed to be fair in the sense that because you are right now, these aren't Gentiles. Gentiles are coming next. But right now, these are ethnic Jews who are culturally Greek coming alongside of the the Hebraic Jews who were also widows. And what should have happened, it should have been all of y'all come up together and we're going to feed all of y'all widows who are Hebrew, widows who are Hebrewish, but also Greek culture, that you are equal. And rather what they were doing was telling these widows, oh, no, 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 you go to the back. And so they filed a complaint. I find it ironic that the Greek-speaking Christians who left the land were more in tune with the heart of God than the Hebrew Christians who never left. They knew the Old Testament. It's the backdrop to their complaint is you're being partial. You're mistreating us. Now, why does this matter? It's a warning to the church. Injustice anywhere committed against anyone is a tragedy. And we're right to grieve and to lament. But what's happening in this passage is injustice done by Christians against Christians. And the wrong way to read this is how could they? The right way to read this is to say, Lord, search my heart. Are there ways in which I treat people with partiality? Are there ways in which I accrue blessing to some and withhold it from others? Are there ways in which I'm not seeing, I'm seeing but not seeing and not responding in the way that the Lord would have me? And I think this is like a little test because you got to remember Paul is coming and Paul is about to bring not Hebrew people who speak Greek. Paul about to bring some real Greeks in here who ain't finna get circumcised, who finna eat chitlins and pork chops, and they don't know nothing about the holy days you keep. Paul finna bring them real boys in there. And so if you can't pass this little test, them your people. They're just like you, except they don't speak your language and they know Greek culture. What you think gonna happen when he bring the real boys in here? You see what's happening? 
It's a test and they're failing it. They're in danger of rebuilding a wall that Jesus Christ has already torn down. That Paul has to say over and over again, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no male, there is no female, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no Scythian, there is no barbarian. In other words, stop using the old raggedy grid in which you assign dignity and worth to people based on their ethnicity, based on their income, based on their culture. What Paul would say, if they are in Christ, we are one. And we treat the body of Christ with dignity. All of us. It's a warning. It's, it's a calling to search our own hearts. Are we partial? It's, secondly, it's a reminder how to handle it. That if this happens in this church, and you are repeatedly treated unjustly, and it's a real biblical case of injustice and partiality. Did you notice how these widows handled this? They didn't gossip. They didn't say, I'm out. Let's go start a Hebrew Greek speaking church only. You know what they did? They said, this is a pattern. I see it happening over and over and over and over and over again. And I know God's heart for the widow. And I know God's heart for the orphan. I know God's heart for the poor. And it's happening over and over and over again. We, we got to say something. Because it's not only not good for us, it's not good for the body to be acting this way. And so they say something. Rather than leave. Third, can we marvel that this is actually in the Bible? I don't know about y'all, but if I'm writing my history of the church, I'm not putting this in there. Think about how we, and I'm going to use we, use social media. We post our best pictures in our best places. And we want to get the right angle and get the arm right. We do, we do all of that, right? What's the point? We don't want to show the bad parts of our lives. And if I'm writing a, a narrative about the church, my tendency would be, I'm not going to show the places where they blow it. I'm not going to show their partiality. Can you imagine being Luke and Holy Spirit is like leading you to write? And you get to write in this? He's like, Jesus, you really want to put the blemishes of the church in the Bible? And he's like, yep. He's like, you really want to put this in the Bible? He's like, yep. You sure you want to put how they blew it in the Bible? And Holy Spirit says, yes. Why? Because God is the biggest prophet to the church, not its most harshest critic. Y'all hear that? Prophets and critics sound alike, says Andy Crouch. And the difference between a critic and a prophet is a prophet of the Lord always holds out repentance and forgiveness. They always believe the gospel is big enough and God is strong enough and the body of Christ is beautiful enough to endure whatever it 
endures. And so you think about John the Baptist. If you read his ministry, he says, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee the wrath of God. He says, don't say to, don't say to us that Abraham is your father. You are thieves. You are greedy. You are stealing money. You are hoarding tunics. And it says he continued to preach the gospel to them and they were cut to the heart. And it says, what do we do? He says, bear fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. And he holds out this glorious Beautiful picture of repentance. You who were stealing, stop stealing. You who taking money, only take what you got to take. You who, who have an extra tunic, share one of them. But if you only look at John the Baptist from what he says at the beginning, he looks like a critic. But he's not. He's a prophet. He's holding out repentance. You can see this and you can grieve this and you can turn from this and you can endeavor a new obedience. God is the church's biggest prophet, not its biggest critic, and therefore he is not ashamed to show the ways the church fails because he knows there is grace and the possibility to repent, and he brings it about that they might change. And that's exactly what you see happening, a hopeful example of repentance to be modeled. The widows aren't the only ones who handle this injustice in a holy manner. It's the disciples, the apostles. I want to look at three aspects of their repentance that I think is helpful for us to, to, to work through this passage. One, their repentance is humble. Two, their repentance is wise. And three, their repentance leads to action. Now, what do I mean their repentance is humble? Did you notice how they responded when the complaint was made? And the 12 told those widows, get out of here. No, that's not what it says. They heard them. And the 12 took their charge seriously, and they summoned the full number of disciples. Don't go to the next phrase yet, but just notice that response. A complaint is lodged, and what do the apostles do? They hear it. They're humble enough to listen. And then there's wisdom in their repentance. If the injustice in verse 1 leads to division, there's another danger that's lurking beneath this. It's diversion. What's a diversion? So about 15 months ago, some of you came to our house and you helped us move everything out of our house or upstairs. And it was because of flooding that the reservoir was about to tilt over and the water was about to flood up there because of record rainfalls. And so somebody up there, powers that be, made the decision that, hey, it's not good for water to come out up here on the reservoir. We're going to divert it. We're going to send it somewhere else. Now, for those of us who live near creeks, when the water from the reservoir comes out, their decision up there to divert means danger for me because I have to, I'm, I'm at risk for being flooded. But a diversion is taking something that should be here and moving it somewhere else. Here's the thing. The disciples of Jesus were tasked with what? 
you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The disciples were called to follow Jesus and preach the word. They were called to use their mouths and their bodies to preach the good news. And did you notice what Peter says? He says, wait a minute, I see what's happening. This is a diversionary tactic because if we who have been set apart to preach and to pray are diverted over here to waste tables, then guess what? It's going to be a disaster because who's going to teach and preach and pray? And so Peter is, or they, are wise. They understand that this is a potentially a lose-lose situation. If we don't care for the widows, our religion is defiled. If we don't preach the good news, we're going to be disobedient and the gospel will not go forward. In their repentance, there is wisdom. And what Peter says, this is my translation. Caring for widows and correcting this injustice is important. And what's also important is preaching and praying. And we can't stop doing this. But this still needs to happen. Because this right here is coming from this same word that we preach that tells us how we're to treat orphans and widows. And so it could be a lose-lose. And notice what Peter says. They're both important. We just can't do this. But here's the solution. We need more people. And this is the action component of their repentance. In light of this dilemma, both things are important. What do we do? Notice what Peter did. Or they, I keep saying Peter, forgive me, and just say they. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and uh, uh, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and, Par- and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte. Nicholas wasn't, wasn't even a Hebrew. He was a Greek-speaking, Greek-born person who underwent circumcision and who became as the Hebrews. Did you notice those things? First, we believe that this is the first appointment of deacons. Two words in this chapter uh, share the same root word of deacon, distribution and the sense of ministry. Did you notice the names of these men? They're all Greek names. You notice their qualifications? Full of the Holy Spirit full of the word of God, men of integrity. Did you notice how Peter calls this a duty? This is humble and it's wise. It's as if the disciples are saying, look, I know there are differences that we don't know about and aren't sensitive to, and we want your experience, your wisdom, your knowledge of culture to help us do this. And he doesn't just appoint them to care for the Hellenistic widows. He puts them in charge of the entire distribution. 
This is beautiful. This is repentance. It's humble. It's wise. And it's deliberate action. That this is the way to respond to the sin of partiality. That we can acknowledge it. And if it's an ongoing thing, we say something. And it be rooted in scripture, bathed in prayer, a clear offense. And if we're on the receiving end of that complaint, we must be quick to listen and slow to speak. We must leave room for the Holy Spirit to work. And this requires humility. Have you ever thought about David when he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah? How the way the prophet confronted him was not through the front door. He gave him a story of a rich man who had a bunch of lambs and a poor man who had one. And the rich man had a guest and the rich man killed the poor man's lamb. And David's heart was angered and embittered. That is wrong. That is wrong. And what did Nathan say? You're the man. Why? We're, we're, we're patient with our mess and quick to be angered at others. And so what Nathan does is go on the back door. He gives him a story that arouses anger, that shows injustice, that shows mistreatment. And then he puts David inside of it because I think David's guards would have got on his heart and says, no, 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 in denial. It's humility. Where do we get this humility from? It's from our union with Christ. If you can understand that you and I are more sinful than we can ever imagine and more love than we could ever hope for. It's the only way we can hear critique and not be crushed. If our identity is in the finished work of Jesus, then we can hear all the times in which we fall short and it not send us away. If you read Exodus, what God should have done was exactly what he did to Ananias and Sapphira. Exodus says that if you mistreat the widow, I will make you widows. And God doesn't do that here. They mistreat and God forbears and God is patient and God is kind. His kindness is leading to repentance. They should have been judged, but judgment has taken place elsewhere. That's on the cross of Christ. And because God has been satisfied to carry out justice on his son, he can give those of us who are partial grace upon grace upon grace. And that's what's happening here. We'll also need wisdom. We'll find ourselves in hard situations. We must be and people and not or people. Peter says we must preach and we must pray. And those tables need to be fed and those widows need to be cared for. We're not either or. We're both and. 
We preach. We pray. We make known the mysteries of Christ. We preach the good news. And we care for the vulnerable in our midst. And I think our culture wants us to do one or the other. I've heard just preach the gospel. Just means only. That's not what Peter does here. We're going to preach and we're going to pray. And somebody has to do this other side. And others will say, well, just do justice that is devoid of the good news. That, that's not the gospel way either. It's both in its and. So the old folks used to say, put some feet on it, preacher. Land the plane, preacher. What does this mean? How does this apply to us right here and right now? A few things. One, directly speaking, this passage is about widows. And the sin beneath it is partiality. But on top of it, it's widows. And Redeemer is a fairly young church. And I can count the number of widows on my hands and my fingers. But we won't always be this way. We're all going to die. And most of the time, we're going to die. And our spouse is going to be left behind to do life without us. And what this passage reminds us is that when that time comes, we need to be ready. Ready to care for our widows. And they may not need your money or your clothing because they got social security. What they'll need is our time and our attention and relationship. I pray that passages like this prepare us for that. It also means that we have to move one layer out. It, 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 it's the sin, I think, here is partiality. It means that it's okay to ask ourselves regularly, am I a partial person? Am I partial in who I support? Am I partial in who I pray for? Am I partial with who I give dignity to? This passage reminds us, man, that, that if you go down that path and you see partiality, we can repent. We can name it. And we can turn again and endeavor a new obedience. This passage also reminds us of God's great design. He gives some to preach and to pray, and he gives others to care for the poor and the vulnerable. And we see this fleshed out in our body with elders devoted to shepherding the flock, protecting the preaching of the word, making sure that we're pointing and doing everything around the supremacy and the beauty of Jesus, and we have deacons who are to promote the spirit of liberality in the body, who are to care for the poor and the vulnerable. And I want to publicly affirm both offices in this building right now. Deacons, I thank you for your faithfulness, for stirring us in this direction. And elders, I thank you for the way that you care about this flock and the teaching and preaching of the word, it's not an either or, it's a both and. May we be a both and church. Last point, I told you it's going to be really quick. 
a helpful encouragement that validates God's good pleasure. After they work through all of this, the injustice and the repentance and the correction, look at how the, th- this section ends. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And even a great many of those priests who was just trying to persecute y'all, they even became obedient to the faith. Why is that there? It's there because this body that had the potential to hurt has experienced healing. And that healing is appealing. And others are watching how they have worked through this and continue to preach the gospel and continue to forgive and to course correct by the Spirit. And people are saying, that's a healing community. May that be true for us. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name. And Father, I pray that you will make us a church that, it, that, that models what we see here. That when there is partiality, and there's a pattern of it, Lord, I pray that we will, will, will hear that and we'll be able to listen soberly and to bring repentance to bear. Father, I praise you for the countless hours that our officers put into leading and caring for your church. And I praise you for the, the stories upon stories of how people have been cared for and loved. May Satan not drive a wedge of division or partiality or even diversion in this place. May you make us a healthy, healing, appealing community for the glory of Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.